continuing with our Ask Your Review of Common Solid Tumors, Dr. Corey Langer reviews lung cancer and a bit of head and neck and thyroid also, beginning with his comments on two meeting plenary presentations on lung cancer, the first of which addressed the long-held interest of Dr. Langer, management of the older patient with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. It's really quite interesting. We have what I would call a paper from our old paradigm and certainly a paper from our new paradigm. So the elderly-specific paper was an effort that was near and dear to my heart. This is an area of particular interest for me. I've done several retrospective analyses in patients 70 years of age and older, and we've shown consistently, at least in North America, that fit older patients, and the key term here is fit, do as well or nearly as well as younger patients, certainly patients with similar performance status. But that mindset is not universal. In Europe, a single agent and advanced non-small cell was, and at least for the time being, remains the standard. If we look at our own guidelines, NCCN and ASCO, single agent is certainly the preferred approach, although we do make some room for combinations. So the work by Elizabeth Kwa and colleagues is really a paradigm-shifting trial. They were able to accomplish what no other group or set of institutions was previously able to accomplish, and that's actually compare a platinum-based doublet, in this case carboplatinum paclitaxel, versus a standard single agent, so either venorobine or gemcitabine, and showed convincingly and overwhelmingly that the platinum-based doublet, in this case a carboplatin-based doublet, was superior in every imaginable way. There was a four-plus-month improvement in median survival, about a 20% absolute improvement in one-year survival. The toxicity, I would argue, is acceptable. I had a sidebar conversation with Cesare Gradelli, who's really the guru of elderly non-small cell research in Europe, and he's still arguing that single agents are the standard or that he would rather look at a cis-platinum combination. But I think this study effectively puts to rest any notion that uh, combination regimens, particularly with carboplatin, is too toxic in the elderly. The age range here was 70 to 90. In fact, the median age was close to 77. So this was absolutely an older population, a group for whom we have a paucity of data. And I just have to applaud the IFCT and the institutions that are part of this. Japan attempted similar studies looking at cisplatin with docetaxel versus single-agent docetaxel, and they aborted their trial before they had adequate accrual. So we've never made an attempt of this sort in North America. So as far as I'm concerned, a platinum-based doublet, preferably a carboplatin-based doublet, which makes a lot of sense in the elderly, is the standard. And I think going forward in the elderly, the carbo with weekly paclitaxel will be our reference arm for any future efforts. This is a tremendous personal validation for myself. Fifteen years ago, I first published on paclitaxel and carboplatin JCO, and for the last eight to ten years, I've actually been using what many of us call the Bolani regimen, which is weekly paclitaxel and monthly carboplatin. Chandra Bolani had done a lot of work with this here in North America, and it's shown that it was relatively safe, certainly as effective as the more standard Q3 week dosing, but with significantly or at least relatively less neuropathy and myalgias. So for the last seven, eight, nine years, I've been using the exact regimen that Qua and colleagues used in this study for my elderly population. So just side note, 80, 85, 88, 90-year-old patient, otherwise healthy. What about Bev? A little bit hesitant there. 
Suresh Ramalingam did a secondary analysis of ECOG 4599, looking specifically at the elderly. And when you add BEV to a conventional Q3-week combination of paclitaxel and carboplatin, you certainly see uh, heightened toxicity, a higher incidence of grade 5 events, and marginal additional benefit. The progression-free survival was certainly heading in the right direction, but overall survival wasn't significantly better. Now, you know, there are a number of caveats there. That analysis wasn't properly powered, really, to detect a major survival difference. Heather Wakeley has actually looked further at both elderly and gender, and if we look strictly at a woman over the age of 60, you seem to do as well with chemo alone as with chemo plus bevacizumab. Women under 60 and men of any age seem to derive a benefit. So it's a bit more nuanced than I think we initially acknowledge. And the elderly, certainly an elderly male patient, I might have a bit more inclination to using bevacizumab. I don't exclude bevacizumab for those over 70, but past 80, I think I'm quite hesitant. So what about the other plenary talk, as you say, more of the future of pulmonary oncology? Well, we're into the era, of course, of targeted treatment. I think that this empiric comparison of chemo combo A versus combo B has certainly been relegated to uh, past tense. The chrysotinib paper is also a paradigm-shifting paper, obviously for a smaller population, but the lucky group, the 5% or so of advanced non-small cell patients who are positive for the ML4 al translocation seem to derive tremendous benefit from this drug. I'm hesitant to call this the gist of lung cancer, but you look at some of the responses here, they're quite impressive. The overall response rate was close to 60%. I think several of the patients who were clearly starting to respond were included in that group because they didn't have their second or third assessments. Progression-free survival was something in the range of 70% at six months. That's as good, if not better, than we see with erlotinib in EGFR mutation-positive patients. And we're not even nearing uh, median survival in this group. And it's particularly impressive because the majority of patients here had received two or more prior regimens. And this is a group that is essentially refractory or only marginally responsive to standard treatment. When we look at the folks with the ML4-ALK translocation, look at the efficacy of standard chemo, it pretty much matches the general population. And these folks, by and large, don't respond to uh, EGFR inhibitors. So we are now screening for EML4-ALK. We typically, in all adenocarcinoma patients, will test for EGFR, for KRAS, and for EML4-ALK. In the case of EGFR mutations, of course, we have approved drugs, although now we're using in the first-line setting where erlotinib has not yet had a formal approval, but if the mutation's present, certainly based on the Tony Mock data and the Kobayashi paper, which was just published in the New England Journal, this uh, abundant justification for using EGFR-TKI up front. We have specific protocols now for patients with KRAS mutations, so although we don't have an approved agent or even the specter of an approved agent, I think that's a group that we want to look at separately. And there are two ongoing trials for the EML4-ALK population. Those who have had two or more prior treatments can go into straight phase two, looking at crisotinib as a single agent. And then the phase three trial, which admittedly is going to be tough to complete accrual, 
is comparing it to standard second-line treatment, be it docetaxel or pemetrexid, with progression-free survival as the primary endpoint, acknowledging again that patients who have disease progression on standard chemotherapy would then go on to crisotinib. I don't think we can deny anybody this drug if they harbor the translocation. Paul Bunn and others have argued that the phase one, phase two data alone should be enough to justify approval of the drug. I suppose the jury's out on that, but one wonders if that's not the right approach. Anecdotally, I have a patient who was diagnosed three and a half, four years ago, presented with a stage 3B, now it would be stage 4, but a malignant pleural effusion, went on standard chemotherapy with Pat Carbo and Bevacizumab at the time, actually did quite well. But while she was on Bevacizumab maintenance, her disease progressed locally in the hilum. She got radiation to the hilum and then was on pemetrexid and actually did well again for about a year and a half, but once more developed disease progression. We went through the usual portfolio of agents. She received gemcitabine. She received erlotinib with absolutely no response. She later received venorobine in combination with C225 with stability for a time, but then progressed. And at this point, in November, December, she was quite symptomatic. She had an intractable cough. She was oxygen-dependent. She had been forced to quit work. She was maybe a month or two away from enrolling on hospice, but she was a never-smoker. And she required absolutely no convincing. She readily consented to a repeat bronchoscopy. And we specifically biopsied tissue for EML4-ALK. She was positive. She's on the phase two trial currently and has had at least a 50% regression in her hilar node. She's oxygen-free. Her cough is gone, and she's back to teaching law. So (laughs) granted, it's an anecdote. It's a minority of patients. But when you see that sort of impact with a unique targeted agent. It's tremendously impressive. How about the late breaker from the NCIC? That was a little bit of a head scratcher. Well, there's not much to say about that. This was one of the first trials to look at the role of targeted therapy in the adjuvant setting. It was an ambitious effort at the time. This was Jafitinib versus placebo in resected patients, curative resections. It was later uh, amended to allow adjuvant chemotherapy in light of a number of positive trials showing a survival benefit for adjuvant chemo. And the trial was crewing actually fairly well, but then we had some bad news. The ISIL trial, of course, failed to show survival advantage for gefitinib in advanced disease versus placebo. And shortly thereafter, the 023 trial from SWOG showed actually a deleterious effect for gefitinib on the maintenance setting in locally advanced disease in patients who received platinum atoposide radiation and a consolidated docetaxel. So that forced the NCI candidate to stop the trial. They actually stopped gefitinib in any patient who was on that arm. So when you look at the trial itself, although it accrued a number of patients, quite a few, I think it was well over 500, the median time on treatment was only about five or six months. And the goal was actually to keep these folks on gefitinib for two years. So the bottom line, there was no effect one way or the other. One concerning sidebar to that, they did look at tissue, and I think that's one of the important findings of the study, in this essentially unselected population, except you're probably phenotypically selecting some of these patients. I believe the EGFR mutation rate was in the order of about 20% which is probably higher than the general population, but probably not terribly surprising for this group. 
the mutation positive group did not seem to have an obvious benefit from trafetinib. In fact, if anything, the placebo group was trending better. The numbers are very small. There was no significance attached. But certainly our hope long-term is to introduce the targeted agents like the EGFR-TKIs or, for that matter, crisotinib to earlier population who may actually derive a survival advantage. And I think a word of caution has been injected by this observation from the NCI Canada trial. But at the end of the day, it's an inconclusive trial. The ongoing radiant trial will really assess whether erlotinib does in fact provide a survival benefit in the adjuvant setting. This trial is completed accrual patients were screened at least on the basis of IHC positivity or fish positivity for EGFR. And needless to say, there will be a mutation analysis. And so far, at least, there's been no major safety concerns and certainly, at this point, no futility concerns. All of these phase three trials, these international efforts have data safety monitoring committees. So we'll learn more. The ongoing trials in the adjuvant setting are looking at newer targeted agents. So that's one example. ECOG-1505 is looking at bevacizumab in combination with chemo versus chemo alone. That trial is about 40 to 45 percent accrued. The MAGE vaccine trial is about 90 percent accrued. So we're getting there. But again, it'll be two, three, four years before we have the results of these efforts. Prior to this time, if you have a patient, let's say with a known mutation, younger patient, well-informed, said, will you give me your lotnib as adjuvant therapy, let's say after chemo, do you say yes, no, or what do you say? I say only on a clinical trial. Empirically, outside of a clinical trial, I won't do it. Fortunately, in the last six, seven months, we've actually started such a trial. We were participating in Radiant when it was accruing, so we would preferentially have put that patient on the Radiant trial, and I think a randomized effort is quite reasonable in that group. Currently, we're collaborating with the principal investigators from Boston, and those who have a documented mutation, we are placing them on a straight phase two trial of erlotinib in that setting. It's up to two years after they receive their standard treatment. So if they have uh, stage 2 or 3A, they get chemotherapy. If they have 1B and the tumor is less than 4 centimeters, obviously a surgery alone followed by erlotinib. If it's bigger than 4, we'll still tend to give chemo and then follow with erlotinib. I think we've accrued about two or three patients so far to that effort. And I think overall, the Boston group and various other collaborators have accrued about 40 patients. How about the CALGB study presented by Passiani looking at erlotinib alone or with chemo? Uh, very important effort. A tough trial to do. This trial mandated tissue. Patients, never smokers or late former smokers, so less than 10 pack years, were randomized to either erlotinib alone or chemo plus erlotinib. And this was based on the post hoc observation from the tribute trial where, if you recall, the tribute trial looked at chemotherapy, pac carbo, with or without erlotinib, placebo control, showed absolutely no survival benefit. But in a subpopulation, about 10% of the total accrual were never smokers. And in that group, there was a whopping survival benefit. Median survival was in the order of 22 months versus maybe 10 and a half months for the control group. So the CLGB effort was really a follow-on of that trial. Now, my one quibble is that they didn't really have a control arm. Everybody got erlotinib either alone or combined with chemotherapy. Nevertheless, if you had a mutation, you did quite well. Survival in the mutation-positive group for the folks receiving both erlotinib and chemotherapy was past three years. These are advanced disease patients. 
metastatic non-small cell. Historically, chemo alone, 8 to 10 months. In the bevacizumab era, maybe 12 months or 13 months. With a mutation-positive group receiving erlotinib, you can expect on average to live three years or more. Single-agent erlotinib was about 31 months. So it may have been a seven- or eight-month difference. That's something that Passiani did gloss over. The question that remains out there, should we just go with erlotinib alone? Or if they are mutation-positive, should we figure out some way to interdigitate erlotinib with standard chemotherapy? Certainly that trial did not address this issue. He did not look at a direct comparison of outcome in the mutation-positive patients with erlotinib versus chemo erlotinib. But beyond that, it was an excellent trial. It did take about three and a half years to accrue the patients they needed. It was about 160, 180 patients. It's tough to get tissue. We act like it's sort of relatively easy, but probably half of more of our patients do not have adequate tissue for biopsying. We have to either consider rebiopsying or trying to do the best we can with the tissue available. How about abstract 7509? I found this particularly unique, the effect of palliative care on quality of life and survival, a phase three study. So this is really the sleeper abstract. <laughs> this, I think in the long run, this abstract may change how we approach lung cancer to some extent more than any other. So Jennifer Tamal and her colleagues from Boston took newly diagnosed non-small cell patients, granted this was essentially a single institution trial, and assigned them to what they called early palliative care, which was really monthly interventions to discuss pain management, general quality of life issues, to look at depression, and also discuss life goals, code status, how patients want to be treated when their disease progressed or when treatment was no longer felt to be beneficial. The main endpoint in this trial was quality of life and functionality. Well, this trial scored on every endpoint. Quality of life was improved. Pain management was improved. Depression scores were improved. And perhaps most surprisingly, but many were not surprised, survival was improved by about two and a half, three months. This is what we seek when we're looking at the newer targeted agents at much higher expense. This is, unfortunately, some of the palliative care interventions that are discussed here aren't automatically reimbursed. So, you know, this approach doesn't necessarily have the allure of the newest targeted therapy, but I really think it underscores the need to intervene early with palliative care issues. We tend to have this go-stop approach. We go full force with chemo or various other interventions while we still think it's worthwhile, and then patients enroll on hospice and we just sort of shut the door, and suddenly our whole approach shifts. We focus on palliative therapy, on managing symptoms, The emphasis here is that we've got to do both in tandem. We've got to do it early. We've got to really discuss all the implications, the prognostic implications of the diagnosis and what long-range plans need to be done. When you look at the group that got early palliative intervention, there were fewer hospital days at the end of life, more enrollment on hospice. They were more likely to be on hospice. And yet, despite all of this, they still lived longer. Uh, very important paper, certainly merited, although it was a relatively small number of patients that were enrolled, about 150 overall. It absolutely warranted its placement in the long plenary session. 
And I hope the healthcare providers and insurers are paying attention to this because the cost of this intervention, certainly compared to the incredibly costly newer agents that we're dealing with day in and day out, is minimal. Yeah, I was thinking when I saw that uh, if this was a drug, we'd be given it. Absolutely. And we should be. What about the paper presented by Tom Lynch? We saw the plenary session paper in melanoma looking at ipilimumab. And Tom presented a phase two study looking at this agent with carbopaclitaxel as first-line therapy in non-small cell. Well, ipilimumab is immunologic therapy that works on CTL4. Certainly, the plenary paper was quite impressive. We saw a survival advantage for this versus essentially standard of care in advanced melanoma patients, including a subset, maybe 15 20% it seemed to be enjoying long-term survival. So Tom essentially reviewed a randomized phase two of chemo alone or chemo combined with ipilimumab, and there was a trend toward improved outcome. PFS was certainly looking a bit better. The trial was underpowered for any major advantage. I'm highly skeptical. The one thing that both the plenary paper and, frankly, Tom's presentation glossed over was the toxicity. This is a very, very, very toxic agent autoimmune reactions, endocrinopathies, diarrhea that can be life-threatening. And I was actually rather upset with the degree to which certainly the plenary session failed to focus on this. Yeah, you know, I actually interviewed Dr. O'Day and I interviewed a couple other people about this. But, you know, even though it sounds kind of scary, I mean, these sort of autoimmune, you know, gut things and skin things and, you know, endocrine things. But According to them, quote, there are simple algorithms to manage these, and it's not that big a deal. Except when the patients die. So the problem is you really need focus and training on how to handle this. It requires immediate intervention. I think O'Day and others have indicated that when they put patients on these trials, they actually gave them their cell phone numbers. I mean, this is not a walk in the park. This is not pemetrexid or some other standard single agent that we give as an outpatient. These patients need immediate intervention. They need to be put on steroids quickly. If you don't, the patients run into terrible trouble, and some of them do succumb. So I'm not sure our advanced non-small cell population is ready for a drug of this sort, and it's really going to have to show in phase three a major improvement in PFS. Obviously, the initial studies are going to have to be confined to good performance status patients before we'll even consider this agent. I was wondering why they looked at it with chemo, or maybe there are other trials looking at it as they did melanoma by itself. I think it would be hard to do a single agent I mean, yeah, not as first line. Yeah, no. Yeah. Even second or third line, you'd probably have to combine it with something, maybe single agent pemetrexid or docetaxel. It wouldn't have necessarily been my first choice either, and obviously this sort of trial would have to be confined to people who are quite fit, who don't have underlying end organ dysfunction. We've got plenty of other agents out there. This is still a relatively nonspecific immunologic approach. I don't know of any markers or targets that can be identified a priori. There is, of course, a whole school of thought that immunologic therapy, be it this approach or vaccines, will ultimately have a role in non-small cell lung cancer, but we've yet to show that. i got to say, the thing about all the melanoma stuff that got me the most excited was the MRIs of the brain, where they saw some responses. Mm-hmm. 
which supposedly were durable. I mean, melanoma is off topic, but BRAF and, you know, the work of the Plexicon drug, I think we're just beginning to enter an era where we actually are identifying agents that may have a preferential role. What about head and neck cancer? Any papers jump out at you? I think probably among the most important paper was the HPV-positive paper that Moira Gillison presented. As we well know, HPV has really changed our approach and, frankly, our attitude toward head and neck. Last year at ASCO, she looked at a paper that was updated this year, which is Kian Ang's abstract 0129, where patients receive platinum and radiation either standard once daily or accelerated with concomitant boost. And one of the interesting observations during the course of that trial was that survival in aggregate exceeded our historic controls. And the speculation was that we were seeing a higher percentage of patients with oral pharyngeal carcinoma and that they were doing better. And she proved that. It was a major analysis. Well over 700 patients were accrued to that trial 60% or more had oropharyngeal cancer. Of those, 75% had adequate tissue for analysis, and 64% were positive for HPV. And if you look at the group that was HPV positive amongst the oropharynx versus the HPV negative, there was a 30% survival difference, something like 63% versus 95% in two years. So really a landmark analysis. She essentially repeated that analysis in a much older study, and this was also part of the plenary session. It's 9003, which is a huge phase three trial through the RTOG, over 1,000 patients, looking at just radiation alone, various radiation recipes. So standard daily, twice daily, accelerated radiation with a planned break, accelerated radiation with concomitant boost, Medical oncologists like myself who labored in that era felt very frustrated because, you know, here we were ready to add chemotherapy to the radiation. We had this huge six-year phase three effort that had absolutely no chemo. Well, she managed to go back and actually get specimens from this 20-year-old trial. Uh, 160 patients had sufficient tissue for analysis, and many, of course, the tissue was depleted or there just wasn't any tissue available, and essentially conducted the same analysis. And lo and behold, In a radiation-only population, you see the same striking difference and much more mature data. The median follow-up now is about 10 years, and we see a survival rate of only about 19% in the HPV-negative group. HPV-positive group, it's about 50%. So no matter what, whether we look at radiation alone or chemoradiation, HPV is associated with a 30% difference in long-term survival. It is, without question, one of the most significant prognostic determinants in head and neck. And oropharyngeal cancer is increasing in incidence. We're seeing a decline in oral cavity. We're seeing a decline in larynx. The other very interesting sidebar, if you look back at the 9003 trial, only about 40% of patients were HPV positive. In the more recent trial that Kian Ang updated, 0129, 64% were HPV positive. So again, this is probably to some extent a reflection on the changing sexual mores of the country. This is without question a sexually transmitted cancer. Smoking habits in both populations, HPV positive and negative, have declined. The HPV positive group smoked less. They smoke even relatively less now. And she showed, again, in both studies, the older study and the newer study, that smoking is a cofactor. If you smoke a lot and are HPV positive, your prognosis is a bit lower. 
If you smoke not at all and you're HPV negative, your prognosis is a bit better than the typical smoker who's HPV negative. And the implication here, and this is really being followed now or being pursued by the steering committee, is that we will be seeing separate trials for HPV positive, HPV negative, and then this sort of nebulous intermediate group, the positives with the higher smoking history and the negatives with the lesser smoking history. And the latest iteration for the HPV positive is to actually compare a standard chemoradiation approach, so full-dose platinum with radiation versus cetuximab and radiation. You know, the toxicities with full-dose platinum are truly horrendous. 50 to 60% of patients get grade 3 mucositis. So we really need to dial back on the intensity of therapy, hopefully can maintain the same relatively good outcomes and with less toxic approaches. And I think that's the ultimate implication of her work. Ken Ang's presentation of 0129 showed that, at least in the context of chemoradiation, that accelerated concomitant boost had no obvious advantage over once daily you can interpret that study any which way you want. The advantage of the concomitant boost, they only get two doses of platinum. If you give single daily, you give three doses. But at the end of the day, you do about the same. Intriguingly, if you only get one dose of platinum in, you do worse. So the key there is you've got to get the platinum in. You're not going to benefit from combined modality from concurrent chemoradiation if you're not delivering the concurrent chemoradiation. Now, you know, is it the underlying comorbidity of the patient or toxicity that's preventing the second or third dose of platinum? That's unclear, but failure to get it in is clearly associated with an impaired outcome, and that was really one of the major observations of 5507. The other major observation, and we've known this for years, but have not really necessarily observe this in the context of chemoradiation is if you have delays in radiation delivery, once more you're going to compromise outcome. You've got to get that radiation in on time. And if you interrupt it for mucositis, in the short term there may be a benefit in terms of toxicity, but you pay a cost in terms of long-term survival. So these patients need to be supported aggressively. They need G-tubes to get through their treatment. It's imperative that they get their treatment on time. Wanebo and Ferris's trials are essentially phase two efforts. Wanebo's was looking at organ preservation. And the reason i particularly intrigued by his approach, the induction approach was weekly cetuximab, pack, and carbo. So an outpatient regimen, very well tolerated, to be honest, far better tolerated than TPF, than combination cisplatin, docetaxel, and 5-FU. I would love to see a comparison trial between those two approaches, but that day will never happen. Finally, I think it's, at least in terms of the head-neck session, it was the year of medullary carcinoma of the thyroid. Who would ever believe that we could actually see studies in this disease? It's relatively rare. About 75% of these are sporadic, 25% are hereditary. Without question, this is a treatable disease. It was a two-to-one randomization of Vandetna versus placebo that showed far and away a response advantage, a progression-free survival advantage. Somehow or other, they managed to accrue over 300 patients with this diagnosis. And it shows a number of things, that targeted therapy in relatively rare diseases is possible, in some cases the preferred approach. Number two, that relatively rare diseases can still be adequately studied, even in phase three efforts. Many of us were quite skeptical that trials of this sort could be executed. And there were data showing that both sunitinib and the exolysis compound 
have activity as well. So the doors have been opened for relatively rare illness, but goodness knows if a patient has metastatic medullary, there are a number of therapeutic options that previously did not exist. In terms of, you know, the PFS advantage is not just subtle. It was a hazard ratio of 0.46, p-value that had a bunch of zeros. It was less than 0.001. I mean, the improvements here were quite glaring.